You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, we are in 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 13 this morning. Uh, Steve just mentioned we are wrapping up our series in 1 John today. So if you've been with us, uh, for these past few months, as we have been weaving in and out of topics like love and life and victory over sin, the consistent unifying thread among all of it is the assurance and the confidence that is held out to us as we trust in Jesus. The assurance and confidence we have in Jesus. John did not write this letter so that Christians might wish. He did not write this letter so that we might think and have some opinions about things. And he did not write simply that we might have hope. But to Christians whose faith was shaken, to men and women who had seen their friends walk away from the church and from faithful belief and practice, to some people longing for an anchor for some solid ground to stand on, John wrote this letter so that you may know. So that you may know. 40 different times in 1 John, the apostle uses the word know or knows. And seven of those come in today's text. So John is going to conclude this letter with some rapid fire reminders of what we know, of what we can have confidence and assurance about. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump right into that. God of heaven and earth, Lord of all creation, we ask that you would pour out upon us the abundant gifts of your Holy Spirit. And may that work that was begun on that day of Pentecost so many years ago, may it continue in us even now as we hear your word and we seek to do your will. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word. Let's wrap up. We could, we could group this in a variety of different ways, but let's wrap up our series in First John by considering four things we have assurance about. Four things that you may know. First, that you have eternal life. Second, that you are heard. Third, that you are kept. And then fourth, that you may know him. 
being Jesus Christ. So first, that you have eternal life. John, one of the apostles who wrote this letter, he is both an evangelist and a pastor. And so he has this deep dual passion for both unbelievers to believe and then for believers to have assurance. And so if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read John's gospel, his account of Jesus's life and ministry, verse 13 here in this letter sounds a lot like the end of that gospel with one significant difference. In the gospel of John, John is writing so that unbelievers would believe. And so he says in John chapter 20, verse 31, this is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. This letter, on the other hand, as we've been walking through it these past couple months, is written to Christians. It's written to those who already believe so that they would have assurance. And so John says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You you already believe this, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I think most of us get the first part of that, that, that we should want unbelievers to believe. If eternal life is found only in Jesus, if he is the way and the truth and the life, and if no one comes to the Father but through him, it makes sense that we would always be wanting unbelievers to believe. Why this huge emphasis from John on believers, people who already believe, having assurance? It's because we forget. We forget. Because of the immense brokenness of this world, because of our own sin, because of our our circumstances, at least in certain times of our lives, and because of Satan's lies, These things are always assaulting our confidence and our assurance that this is true. These things are constant pressures to invert the true story of the world. It's it's easy for us to begin to take on the vantage point of the psalmist in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, the psalmist starts to really envy the wicked. The the lives of those people who want nothing to do with God, who, who want nothing to do with walking in God's way, that starts to look a lot easier to the psalmist. It starts to look like a lot more fun. And he starts to lament and begrudge the cost of trying to be faithful in this world. Like the psalmist in Psalm 73, we need constant reminders of what's really true. In Psalm 73, the the psalmist goes to the temple. He goes to the house of the Lord. And he has this eye-opening moment. He remembers, by the grace of God, the true story of the world. He perceives the way things really are and how they're going to ultimately play out. What I hope you see this morning is that verse 13 of John's letter is that kind of moment offered to you. It's that kind of moment offered to you. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. You have eternal life. Not the full experience of it. Not yet. But the real quality of it, and and one which will go on forever. In the last battle, which is the, the seventh and final book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, the characters find themselves in Aslan's country. And once there, there's a refrain that they start to hear and eventually start to repeat among themselves. And the phrase is, farther up and farther in. Farther up and farther in. In other words, there is an unending depth to our experience of eternal life. What, What has begun because of the work of Jesus? What begins right now? the eternal life we already have in Christ only gets better and better forever. 
even if life, even if circumstances in this world do not. And the last battle concludes with with this really hopeful thought about eternal life. C.S. Lewis writes, for them, meaning the, the characters in Aslan's country, for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Men and women, don't don't ever let the circumstances of your life or discouragement or competing narratives flip the script of the real story. If you trust in Jesus, it is you who has eternal life. It is you who has, who possesses life with God forever. The life which you and every other image bearer of God was created for. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, we are not scavenging in dark alleys of the world, poking in its garbage cans for a bare subsistence. We are traveling in the light toward God who is rich in mercy and strong to save. It is Christ, not culture, that defines our lives. It is the help we experience, not the hazards we risk, that shape our days. I don't know about you, there there are times where I experience deep discontentment and deep discouragement and where following Jesus does feel a little bit like scavenging in a dark alley, does feel a little bit like poking around in a garbage can. When you find yourself there, come back here. Come back here to 1 John 5, 13. Know that because of Jesus, you have eternal life. You are traveling in the light toward God who is rich in mercy and strong to save. The answer in those times of our lives is not to walk away. It's not to change course. It's to come farther up and farther in. Second, second, John writes that you may know you are heard. You are heard. So in addition to knowing we have eternal life, as if that weren't enough, we have confidence that God hears us. Verse 14, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. And then furthermore, verse 15, because it's God and because God hears us, we get what we ask for. We get what we ask for. Now we're going to spend a good bit of our, of our summer uh, walking through a sermon series about prayer. I'm really looking forward to it. We have a mini series these next few weeks, but at the end of June, we'll jump into that and be in that for the rest of the summer. So I'm going to save a deep dive on this for a few weeks from now. But for this morning, two things for us to see here. First, that the deepest and best answer to our prayer is simply to know that God hears them. That, to know that God is there, that God is listening, and that he hears you. Now, this is not the only purpose of prayer, but, but one of prayer's foundational purposes is that we would experience communion with the living God. That we would relate to and with him. As John has been writing throughout this letter, he is our father, We are his children. Well, we get the immense privilege of coming before him in that relationship, speaking to and with him and doing so with confidence that we are heard. That's one thing to see here. The second thing is that our prayers are powerful and effective. That prayer is not an exercise in futility. God hears and God answers. It's like what James writes in James chapter five. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. 
John says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he not only hears us, but we get what we ask for. God is the one who gives the good gifts of a perfect father. And after laying this groundwork out in verses 14 and 15, John then gives an example. He gives one specific application of this in verses 16 and 17. What kinds of things should we ask for? If God hears us and answers us when we pray according to his will, what are the kinds of things that we should be asking for? Well, for one, we should ask God to give life, to give forgiveness and restoration to fellow Christians who are sinning. To fellow Christians who are sinning. This is a, verses 16 and 17 is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. And, and maybe you've, you've felt that as we read through it a little while ago. Most specifically, what are the sins not leading to death compared with sin that leads to death? Because at first glance, we read that and it kind of feels like maybe this life is like walking through a minefield that God has created. And there's a few landmines buried in this field. And I really hope you don't step on them. Like some sin's okay, but some sin, if you step on that one, sorry, no chance for you left. But in context, the the sin that leads to death would be the kind of sin that's being committed by John's opponents in this letter. These people who were once part of the church, but who have now left and are trying to lead other people astray as well. So one scholar puts it this way. He says, these false teachers manifested the spirit of Antichrist. And John's written about that a couple times as we've looked at in previous weeks. But they manifested the spirit of Antichrist, separated themselves from the true church, and perverted or rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ. In deliberately rejecting the incarnate Son of God, in whom eternal life is available, they committed themselves to a spiritual attitude and course of action that could only be characterized as sin unto death. In other words, The sin that leads to death is deliberate, purposeful, persistent rejection of Jesus. And especially rejection which then attempts to to lead other people to do the same. We could say it this way, and I hope this is an encouragement to you because it certainly is to me. If this morning you're nervous that you might be committing the sin that leads to death, you almost certainly aren't. Like you can take a deep breath. You can, okay, ha, all right. If you have that sensitivity in your conscience where you you really don't want to do that, you don't want to commit the sin that leads to death, that's almost certainly evidence that that that's not what John's talking about here. Now, you still sin. I still sin. And that is still a big deal. Can't minimize that. All wrongdoing is sin, John writes in verse 17. It's all still an offense to God, and it all must be dealt with. But what John has been saying over and over again in this letter, because of Jesus, even the worst of our sins, the worst of our offenses, need not lead to death. In Christ, we can live in spite of the the ways that we've sinned. Now, this is a little tangent in John's writing here. In your Bible study groups this week, you can get sidetracked and spend like your whole time talking about the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't. Please don't do that, okay? Please don't do that. Let's remember why this little tangent is here. It's John's example, one of, it's one example of the power and efficacy of our prayer. You really are heard by God. He hears you and he answers you. And one of the ways we're meant to use that immense gift and privilege is to pray for fellow Christians who are sinning. When that's happening, 
When you have a friend that's also a Christian, when you have a family member that's also a Christian, and they're sinning, they're, they're stuck in some kind of sin in their life, the best thing that you can do is not to gossip about them or to vent about that to someone else. It's not even to go and talk with them about their sin, although that's often going to be involved at some point. But the best thing and the first thing that you should do is to talk to God about them, to pray for them, to pray for that brother or sister in Christ. And I hope you see this morning the opportunity and the role that you have been given. Because this is kind of incredible. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can change and transform people. But look at this immense role he has given you. When a fellow Christian is sinning, you are told to ask God to grant life. And what happens? Verse 16, God gives life. God gives life. There are only two possible reasons we wouldn't do this. One is that we don't love our brother and sister. We're fine with him or her continuing in sin. We've got this incredible thing that it's in our power to do to help, help them and to bless them, and we don't do it because maybe we like feeling superior to them, maybe because we, we vindictively hope that they're going to learn their lesson the hard way by dealing with the consequences. But John has been writing in this letter time and again about love for our brothers and sisters. Jesus' new commandment by which we prove that we really are his, his followers. And so if we lack love for others, not only will we most likely not be praying for them, but any prayers we are praying will be hindered because we certainly in that moment will not be asking according to God's will. Now, if that's one reason why we wouldn't pray for fellow Christians. The other is that we don't actually believe God hears us. We're not actually convinced of that. We think God is reluctant to hear us and to answer. But as George Mueller so aptly put it many years ago, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Christian, the, the God of the universe hears you. Know this morning, you can know this morning that you are heard. And in that confidence, pray for other Christians who you know, who at this very moment are embattled with sin. I want to ask you to think this morning, who will you commit to pray for today? Who will you commit to pray for today? Knowing that God hears you, whose name will you speak in the ear of the Almighty? Whose name will you bring before God to lay hold of his willingness to grant life? Or perhaps right now, as you reflect on this, you're the Christian who's sinning. You're the Christian who's, who's immersed in some kind of ongoing sin. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, I want to ask you, who are you going to ask to pray for you? What other Christian are you going to ask to pray for you? With confidence that God hears, ask a fellow Christian to pray for you. Be vulnerable. Take that risk. Ask a fellow Christian to pray for you. As James puts it in James chapter 5, confess your sins not only to God, but confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed you may be healed. Third, third, that you may know you are kept. You are kept. 
Look again at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. The first half of this verse is a, is a callback to what John has written about previously in this letter. Christians are by no means perfect people. John has said, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But we are, as Christians, we are people who pursue holiness and pursue a, a purity of life. In Jesus, we get to sing about this this morning, we are free indeed. We have victory over our sin. We can repent and believe and we can live lives that have victorious freedom over sin. And so the second half of this verse is the infinitely more encouraging part. As one author put it, there, there would be little cause for confidence if our victory over sin was dependent on our own ability to keep ourselves safe. Like if that's on us, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. But instead what John says is you are kept by Christ. You are kept by Christ. The one who was born of God, the only begotten son is the protector of everyone born of God. Or to say it another way, Christians are protected and are kept by none other than Jesus Christ. And that means, friends, that, that as we struggle against sin in our lives, we do so with the confidence that Jesus Christ is stronger than Satan. That Jesus Christ is stronger than your sin. That our protector has more power than the evil one. As John goes on to say, the, the whole world lies in the power of Satan. This world is the place where Satan exercises his power, his influence. And those who are apart from Christ will fall prey to his snares and to his schemes, but not those who are born of God. Not those who are born of God, not those who believe in Jesus. Now, John is saying here, children of God, the world is enslaved, but you are safe. The world is precarious, but you are protected. And nothing, not even Satan can snatch you out of Jesus's hand. You are a kept Man, if you have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you are a kept man. You are a kept woman. And as Alexander Ramsey put it, he is well kept whom Christ keeps. He is well kept whom Christ keeps. In his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson offers this helpful illustration. He says, living as a Christian is not walking a tightrope without a safety net, high above a breathless crowd, many of whom would like nothing better than the morbid thrill of seeing you fall. Does it feel like that's what the Christian, doesn't the Christian life feel like that sometimes? Like you're on a tightrope, way up in the air, there's a crowd gathered below and at least half of them are like, man, I hope he falls. I hope she just comes tumbling down from that tightrope. Eugene Peterson says, it's not that, it's sitting secure in a fortress. The Christian life is precarious. There are dangers but what John is emphasizing in this letter is not the precariousness, but the protection. Following Jesus is not a tightrope without a safety net. It is a fortress. And that means, church, that you and I never have to create our own fortresses. Because you are kept by Christ, you can live publicly, presently, faithfully in this world and help push back what is dark, the darkness of the evil one. See, see if you're not confident that Jesus is your fortress, you will waste way too much of your mist of a life trying to build your own fortress. You'll, you'll move to some remote place. 
You'll go off the grid completely. You'll cut off contact with all people who don't already agree with you a thousand percent. But if you are kept, if you are confident that Jesus is an infinitely stronger and better and more secure fortress than you and I could ever create for ourselves, you will with him run into the darkness. And Christian, you are kept. You are kept. In Christ, the evil one does not touch you. So where this morning are you still trying to construct your own fortress? Who are you hiding from? What are you hiding from? And instead of that, who are the people that you can now pursue? What are the places that you can now go because you are eternally protected and kept by Jesus Christ? So eternal life, that you are heard, that you are kept. Fourth and finally, John says, that you may know him. And that, of course, is the whole point everything he's written in this letter. Christianity is not simply about knowing truth with a lowercase t. It's about knowing capital T truth, knowing, as John says, him who is true. Christianity is not simply about experiencing the gifts of eternal life, being heard and being kept. Christianity is about knowing the giver. Apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life. Apart from Jesus, you are not heard. Apart from Jesus, you are not kept. Apart from Jesus, there is no confidence or assurance offered to you. But, verse 20, because we know that the Son of God has come, and because he has given us understanding, we may know him who is true. In this letter where he has been continually kickboxing with opponents about the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus. John actually saves his best and clearest identification for these closing lines. Who has come? Who has given us understanding? Who is it that we know? And and who is it that we are found in? The son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And you may know him. You may know him. So therefore, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's such a a striking end to this letter that some people have tried to claim it wasn't part of the original, that it got added in by John's followers, by Jesus' followers in later years. But in light of what John has been driving at, this closing makes complete sense. If, If the whole point is to know him, to know Jesus, and if an idol is anything that we love or enjoy or pursue more than Jesus then what closing makes more sense than a call to keep yourself from idols? And so I'd invite you to consider this morning in your Bible study group discussions or in conversations with friends and family, what idols still appeal to you? What idols are are you personally going to need to be diligent to keep yourself from? Control, comfort, approval, position, pleasure, Material wealth, and that's by no means an exhaustive list. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. That we're we're always capable of cranking out more. Always ready to take even good things and turn them into ultimate things that we devote ourselves to more than we devote ourselves to Christ. But what the apostle says at the end of this letter is that for all the promises any of those idols might make, we know something infinitely better. We know someone 
infinitely better. Do not ever settle for something less because you know Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life because you know him. It has been a a joy to walk through this letter with you. My prayer this morning for you is that John's words, that God's word through John would do for you exactly what it did for Christians in the first century and that you would live your life with renewed confidence and assurance that you can know all of these things. This faith of ours, with its scandalous claims, with its audacious promises, this faith of ours is not a matter of I wish or I hope or I think. But because God himself has spoken, because God himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ and lived and died and rose again, you may know, you may know. Today, may you know that you have eternal life. May you know you are heard. May you know you are kept. But most of all today, may you know him. Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, you sent your son that we might have eternal life in him. And we praise you, Jesus, for the eternal life that is found only in you. Father, you sent your spirit to empower the disciples on the day of Pentecost to seal us with your promise for all time. And so we ask now that you would prepare to send us out as your witnesses, filled with that same spirit, heard by you, kept by you, to proclaim this good news to all nations, carrying out the great commission in faithfulness and obedience to him who is true, the only God, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. By your spirit's power, would you fix our eyes on him today and to the day of eternity? Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.